All right, good fitting song for our message tonight. We're going to be talking about the new covenant and the grace of God that we have through Christ in this new covenant. So we're in Hebrews chapter 8 tonight. We're going to take the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13, and a study I'm calling the sweet service of our great high priest. As we look at Christ's ministry tonight, last week we saw how Christ is alive. You know, he's, he's in heaven right now for us. He's interceding. He's, he's preparing a place for us. He's preparing to come back. He's, um, you know, and, and tonight we're going to see that he has a lot more that he's doing as well on our behalf. He's ministering. He's mediating. He, he's our mediator. And so uh, let's pray. Let's see what the Lord has for us. Father, thank you for your grace, Lord, that you have forgiven our sins and that you continually wash us and cleanse us. Lord, I'm reminded of that, that night, Lord, you met with your disciples around that last supper. And there, Lord, that evening you took the towel and girded yourself as a servant and you went around and washed your disciples' feet. Demonstrating, Lord, that as we walk with you, Lord, our, at times our feet get dirty, Lord, and we need you to cleanse us and wash us, Lord. And I pray that tonight as we get into your word, Lord, and, and see your grace, that we would experience that, that cleansing effect, Lord, on our lives, that it would encourage us, Lord, to go out and take the battle back out to the street. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill us, anoint this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So it's that time of year when we as Americans eat a lot of candy, right? Everywhere you go, it seems like there's a bag of candy. I mean, every time I walk out of the church on Sunday morning, it's a temptation. I want to eat candy, but I know it's for the kids. It's for the children's, right? And so, so I have to leave it. You go to Walmart, there's entire aisles full of candy. Well, this got me thinking a lot about candy. M&M's, where did the name actually come from? Well, let me give you a little background real fast. And this does tie into our study, by the way, so I'm not just going crazy here. I'm not on a sugar high here tonight. Here's some sweet history on the M&M. I read this from history.com. It says, after clashing with his father... The creator of Milky Way, uh, the, the creator of the Milky Way bar for a few years at Mars Inc., Forrest Mars Sr., moved to England, where in 1932 he began manufacturing the Mars bar for troops in the United Kingdom. It was during the Spanish Civil War that Mars purportedly encountered soldiers eating small chocolate beads encased in a hard sugar shell as part of their rations. In an age when sales of chocolate typically dropped off during summer months due to the lack of air conditioning, Forrest was thrilled by the prospect of, de of developing a product that would be able to resist melting in high temperatures. He returned to the United States and shortly thereafter approached Bruce Murray, the son of Hershey executive William Murray, to join him in his new business venture. Anticipating a shortage of chocolate and sugar as World War II raged um, on in Europe, Mars sought a partnership that would ensure a steady supply of resources to produce his new candy. In return, Murray was given a 20% stake in the M&M product, which was named to represent Mars and Murray. In 1941, Mars was granted a patent for his manufacturing process, and production began in Newark, New Jersey. Originally sold in cardboard tubes, M&Ms were covered with a brown, red, orange, yellow, and green, or a violet coating. After the United States entered the war, the candies were exclusively sold to the military, enabling heat-resistant and easy-to-transport chocolate to be included in the American soldiers' rations. And by the time the war was over, the GIs returned home, and they were hooked. And so shortly after the war was over, they came home, told their kids about it. They, they were all pumped up about it, and then the rest is history. M&Ms are out. Now, what does this have to do with our study tonight? Well, 
the writer of Hebrews is going to encourage you and I in our spiritual battle as we walk with the Lord, right? Our Christian walk, the Bible describes, is a battle. We're called soldiers of Jesus Christ. We have an enemy who's an adversary. He's continually trying to attack, whether it's through the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, prior life, whether it's through the trials and tribulations of the world. He's always trying to attack. But the writer wants to encourage us to press forward. And the way that he does so is by setting us aside and encouraging us with this sweet M&M service of Christ. We're going to see tonight that Christ is a minister in the heavenly tabernacle and second, a mediator of the new covenant. And so just as these soldiers, man, in a, you know, would pull off a time of battle, sit there and kind of rest and open up their M&Ms, right? Eat some of those things. Even so, you and I, we have a time to stop and just rest with the Lord and allow him to minister to us through his sweet word and encourage us to go and take the battle back out to the streets. So let's look at Christ minister in the heavenly tabernacle, first of all, in verses 1 through 5. It says, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And so the writer sums up what he's been saying. And here's how he sums it up. We have such a high priest. Plain and simple. We have such a high priest. This Jesus that he's been talking about in his person and his work is greater than anyone and anything. Compared to Judaism, that's what the writer's been talking about. He said, let's go to the prophets. He's greater than the prophets. Let's compare him to Moses. He's greater than Moses. Let's compare him to the high priest, Aaron, and his line. He's greater than them. Anything you put up against Jesus, he's greater. And many of you have found that out in different things, in non-holy things, right, as you walk with the world. Solomon found that out. As Solomon went out into the world and said, hey, I want to I experience pleasure in, in all I can and see if it fills me. And, and he tried to go out and have all these pursuits, and in the end, it was all vanity. It was all wasteless. You know, it, it was all useless. And in the end, he said it true. He said, remember your creator in the days of your youth. He realized that man has eternity in his heart, and only through a relationship with Jesus Christ could a person be totally satisfied and filled. Jesus is greater. We have such a high priest who's in heaven desiring to have a relationship with us. Now, it's verified that Jesus is greater than anyone and anything based on the fact that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Christ is risen again from the dead. Compare him to any religion in the world. They all have a faith. A Muslim can believe many things. A Buddhist can claim that they receive nirvana in many things. But yet they have no outward evidence that what they actually believe is true. They have no objective, verifiable evidence. But Christianity, we do. We have an empty tomb, right? We have a risen Savior. We have proof through the Bible. I mean, there's countless arguments that we can make for the truth of Christianity. And Christ is at the right hand of God today, proving that he is who he says he is. Now, the fact that he's seated at the right hand of God shows that he's equal with God. You don't sit at the right hand of the king unless you're equal with the king. In the same way, the Lord is sitting at the right hand of the Father, showing that he is also God as the Father. The Bible teaches that there's a trinity, one God and three persons. He's seated. Now, this would shock the Jews who read this, especially talking about the priesthood, because the Jews know that in the tabernacle, and also later in the temple, in the holy place, in the most holy place, there was no chair mentioned in the furniture. There was no lounge chair, lazy boy, mentioned. Why? Because the priests would never sit down. Their work was never done. They had to continually offer sacrifice day after day, year after year, because sins had to continually be covered. 
But yet when Christ died on the cross for our sins, he rose again from the dead and he sat down at the right hand of God, showing, hey, the work is complete. The work is finished. And that's what he said on the cross. He said, Tetalosai, it is finished. And that word is actually used, I'm told, in the marketplace in the ancient culture on a receipt showing that the price was paid in full. So the sins of mankind were paid in full through Jesus Christ. And by faith, we can have that forgiveness of sins. It goes on in verse 2. It says, he's a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And so, yes, Christ did pay for our sins. They're once and for all uh, forgiven. But the Lord continues to serve as he's in heaven. He's continually serving on our behalf. And we, as I said, we talked about that last week. The writer points out that Christ is serving in this sanctuary, this true tabernacle, not made with man's hands, but erected by the Lord. And so we all know about this tabernacle that was set up in the book of Exodus. Well, that tabernacle, as we're going to see, was a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And so here is these Jews. They were under spiritual warfare, under spiritual battle. They were being bombarded. And their idea was, hey, you know what? Let's, let's just solve our issues right now by going back to Judaism, going back to the temple. And the writer says, why go back to the temple when you have a high priest who's serving in the heavenly tabernacle right now? You need to press forward. He goes on, talks about his ministry. He says, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. A priest in the Old Testament, they had a twofold ministry. They would represent God to the people, and they would represent the people to God. That's how they functioned. They would represent God to the people by, you know, speaking forth the word of God to them, and they would represent man to God by bringing their gifts and their sacrifices. The gifts referring to the different offerings that God established in the book of Leviticus, you know, like the drink offering, the meal offering, all these different ways that God established under the law that man could worship God. But then there was needs for sacrifices. Sacrifices were the sacrifice of an innocent animal, usually a lamb or a bull in the place of a person. A lamb or a bull, why? Well, because the wages of sin is death. And so because man sin, man must die for their sin. Well, God in his grace, rather than man die for their sin after they fell, God instituted a way to temporarily cover man until he can provide a final sacrifice, a man to die in the place of a man, a God-man. He established animal sacrifice. And this animal would take the place of the victim. They would die in their place for their sin. But it had to be done continually, year after year, day after day. Well, Christ, being a high priest, he offered a greater sacrifice, a greater offering. He offered his own life. That's what Christ did. He offered his own life for us. Peter tells us that Jesus offered himself as a lamb precious and spotless to God. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And so this verse clearly shows that the priesthood and the sacrificial system was in, still, was in full operation at the temple there in Jerusalem. So this shows that the book was written before 70 AD. The writer says, hey guys, we all know Jesus was from the line of Judah, from the line of David. And so if he was on earth, he couldn't be a priest because he isn't from the line of Aaron. He couldn't because the priesthood is already functioning and God was still... Um, was still um, the line of Aaron was still functioning in the priest. God wasn't using them because, of course, Christ 
as a high priest, but um, they were still there. They were still functioning in that way. But yet, Christ is in heaven, and so he can be a priest. He's of this order of Melchizedek. Verse 5, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And so once again, here's the greatness of Christ at God's right hand. And here's the force of what he's saying. Why go back to the temple on earth when you can go to Christ who is in heaven? Christ is a Christ is the great high priest who's ministering for us. He's such a great high priest. We're told he's seated at the right hand of God. He's in a greater tabernacle. He's offered a greater sacrifice. It's not the blood of bulls and goats, but his, it's his own life. And concerning this tabernacle, it's, it's the real thing. It's the real deal. Now, what Moses established there with the tabernacle and later, later with the temple, it was only a picture. It was only a type. And God said, Moses, I don't want you to mess this up. I want you to make it exactly like I tell you. And there was a reason behind it. It's because it was to be a picture of where Christ would rule and reign for us. And so Jesus is a great high priest. It's that sweet ministry that he has for us. Second, verses 6 to 18, we see Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. But now we have, uh, but he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And so now the focus of the writer changes. He changes from the service of Christ as a minister and now to the service of Christ as a mediator of this new covenant. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is really an agreement between two people. It's a contract between two or more individuals. A mediator is a person who represents each party to each other. For example, Moses, in the book of Exodus, served as a mediator for the law. And so there, when God established the law, right, Moses operated as a mediator for it. People say, hey, we don't want to talk to God. You talk to God for us. And so Moses went and talked to God for the people. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, and then Moses spoke to the people. He served as a mediator. And he got even deeper than that. When God made this covenant, right, God established his covenant by sprinkling the blood on the priest and also sprinkling the blood on the people, showing that this covenant was made between these two groups, between God and Israel. Now we see that Christ is also now a mediator, but he's not a mediator of the old covenant, of the law, but he's a mediator of this new covenant that he has established, this better covenant. And why is it better? Well, because it's established on better promises. And so the writer now is going to break these things down. He says, okay, check this out. We have a better covenant than the law, and it's based on better promises. And he goes on to explain these two points here. In verses 7 through 9, we see it's a better covenant, and he explains why. He says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, no place would have been sought for a second. Now, this first covenant, it has a lot of names in the Bible. It's been called here the first covenant. Um, now, this is not the first covenant that God made with man. There's other covenants throughout the Bible before the law was given, such as the Abraham, covenant that God made with Abraham, right? And, and then uh, um, the covenants that God made with Noah. But this covenant, it's the first covenant that God made with the nation of Israel as a whole. 
And so when Israel came out of Egypt, they were a nation, and God said, okay, I'm going to establish this covenant with you. Yes, the covenant of Abraham do, you know, does apply to Israel, but this is the first covenant that he made with them. Also, it's first in the sake of argument. So, you know, he's talking about these two arguments. Now he's going to talk about um, the first one. So this covenant has been called the Law of Moses, the Old Covenant, or the First Covenant. Now, the Law of Moses is given in the Bible from the book of Exodus until the book of Deuteronomy. That's the law. That's the Old Covenant. Some scholars say it consists of 613 commandments. And James tells us in his book that this was all looked at as one unit. Oftentimes, to help as we study the Bible, we often break down these laws based on different categories. Like we say, well, there's the ceremonial laws. And then there's the moral laws, such as you know, the Ten Commandments. And then there are the um, religious laws and things like that. You know, dietary laws and things. But James says, no, well, no, there's only one, there's only one binding law. It's all of it or nothing. If you break one law, James says, you're guilty of them all. And so the Jews looked at them as, as one unit. They were binding on Israel. Now, while Israel was under the law and actually disobeying the law, God sent the prophet Jeremiah to the nation of Judah, and he predicted a new covenant that would come. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. So now the writer's using some of the same logic that he's already used. Remember when he was talking about the priesthood? You know, he says, hey guys, here, here was the priesthood under the law, under Aaron. But yet, while you guys were under the law and under the priesthood of Aaron, why did God say in Psalm 110.4 that a new priesthood would come, according to order of Melchizedek? And so, since God prophesied a new priesthood, obviously, the priesthood of Aaron was temporary. Something better was going to come. And so, the same weight of argument is now being used for the law and for the new covenant. He says, while you guys were under the law, God prophesied through Jeremiah that a new covenant would come. That shows you that the law was only temporary and that something greater would come. Something else would take its place. And what would take its place would be this new covenant. Verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with those of the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And so the writer shows in these verses that God did not need a new covenant, but man did. Notice that. Man needed this new covenant. The promise of the new covenant was based on the fact that God found fault with them, not with the covenant. Paul says in Romans 7, 11 through 12, For sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me, and it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. There was nothing wrong with the law. The law, Paul says, is holy, just, and righteous. But yet Paul said, there was something wrong with me. God said, there's something wrong with you. And what is that? Man is a fallen sinner. And the law required that a person continually keep the laws. We'll see it was a conditional covenant. We'll talk more about that as we talk about the new covenant. It was a conditional covenant. It was based upon Israel's obedience to keep the law. God said, if you will obey my law and keep my covenant, he told Israel, you'll be blessed. Your land will be blessed. Your families will be blessed. You'll have, you'll have spiritual blessings and physical blessings. 
But if you disobey my law, God said, then judgment's going to come. And he described these different judgments that would come. Well, man, being a fallen sinner, could not keep the law perfectly because the law never gave inward righteousness. The law only set up a command to do, but it never gave the enablement to do it. And since the law was looked at as one unit, every time you broke one law, you were under the curse of the law. You were guilty of all the law. It was a continual process of breaking the law and repenting, breaking the law and repenting, sacrifice after sacrifice. So there's nothing wrong with the law. It was good and just. It shows God's righteousness and holiness. But yet it points out that man's a sinner. Based on this fact, the New Testament is clear that the law was not permanent. It was not to be God's absolute standard by which man relates to him. It was only temporary. It was temporary for a reason. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 3, 19-25. He says, what purpose then does the law serve? Well, it was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not meet for one only, mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would be afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so the law was never given to save. It can never give you inward righteousness or the power to keep it only through Jesus Christ. But God had a reason in giving the law. Paul said that God had given mankind a promise through the, through the covenant of Abraham. God said, in Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, that blessing would come through the promise of the seed, his seed line, and that would be through Jesus Christ, who would give salvation to all mankind. But Paul says, because the law was added after that promise, it doesn't make that promise void. It was added for a purpose. And the reason why it was added was it was added in order to keep Israel pure. And this is shown in the fact that it was called a tutor. A tutor is not a teacher. A tutor was a disciplinarian, a person whose job was to keep the children in line until they became of the age of maturity. The parents said, hey, we're going to go work. You keep the kids, discipline them, and have to keep them in line. And they did that until they became of age of maturity. And Paul said that's what the law was like. Maturity comes when you have faith in Jesus Christ. But until Jesus Christ came, someone needed, to keep, someone needed to keep Israel in line. Someone needed to keep them, and that was the law. It was a set of rules. Also, Paul talks about the law giving in order to keep Israel Israel. The law was very separating for Israel. When you read the book of Leviticus, you see that. God said, don't wear different mixed clothing. Don't eat this food, and you, you can eat that food. You can hang out with this nation, but don't hang out with that nation. You're like, man, why all this separation? Why all this separation? Well, because God was concerned about the seed promise through the line of Abraham, this blessing. And God wanted to make sure that Israel would stay pure until this promise was fulfilled. And so he gave this promise to separate Israel from the other nations in order to protect them from becoming defiled and corrupting that promise through Abraham, through the line of Abraham. But once Jesus came and died on the cross, there is no need for the law anymore. We now have, as the writer says here, 
a new covenant. So that's the stress of Paul, and that's the stress of the New Testament concerning the law. Now, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that true righteousness for those under the law was by recognizing that they were a sinner, that they needed Christ as Savior, and they were to follow the word of God with their heart, soul, strength, and mind. So yes, the law did keep Israel straight, right? The law revealed God, but the law would teach people how to walk properly. And Jesus demonstrated that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, hey guys, blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, if you guys were truly righteous following the law, you would be poor in spirit. You'd be seeking after me right now. You would recognize that you're a sinner and that you can't keep the law and that you need a savior. And he said, if you're really following the law, well, then you'll be keeping it with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, not like the scribes and Pharisees. The writer goes on now in talking about this new covenant even more. He says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. And so, first we see that the law was temporary, and that this better covenant would come, but now the writer tells us even more. He says that this new covenant would be unconditional. It would be unconditional. Now, when God made covenants in the Bible, there was two kinds, usually. There was conditional, and there was unconditional. Conditional means it's, as I said, based upon two parties. You have your responsibility, I have my responsibility. And that's what the law was like. God said, hey, if you'll keep my law, you'll be blessed. If you don't keep it, you'll be cursed. But there was unconditional covenants, such as the one made with Abraham in Genesis 15. God said, hey, Abraham, I will do this for you. And then in order to demonstrate it for you, God put Abraham to sleep. And God cut covenant with him. He passed through there the sacrifices, showing that he was the one that was going to fulfill it. Now, in talking about this new covenant, this would be different than the one that he made with Israel under the law. How would it be different? Well, it would be different because it would be unconditional. You see, Israel did not continue in the law. Therefore, they were disregarded or they were judged and sent away to wicked nations such as Assyria and Babylon. But this new covenant would be unconditional. And this new covenant would be based alone on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what it's based on. It's not based upon our work or us earning it, but it's based upon Jesus. We know this because Jesus at the Last Supper, which we're going to take tonight communion, said this. We're told in Matthew 26, 27, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which has been shed for the remission of sins. Jesus, before he went to the cross, said, hey guys, I'm gonna teach you something right now. He grabbed the bread and broke it. This is my body broken for you. And then he grabbed the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. This is for the new covenant. When Jesus went to the cross, he was the one who established that new covenant. We had nothing to do with it besides our sin putting him there on the cross. But he was the one who paid it in full. He was the one who did it. And therefore, it's based upon him and him alone in order to keep us in that covenant. You see, when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into this new covenant now through faith. And it's not based upon, but the blessing of God in my life is not based upon me keeping the law or me keeping these things but it's upon Christ and what he's done on the cross. 
Because I put my faith in Jesus and I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again from the dead, God says, you're justified. Because of what Jesus did, God said, I'm gonna bless you. That's hard to, to imagine, especially as a human, because we always think that it, there has to be something that I do in order for God to love me, right? Man, if I can do all this and this and this, well, then God's really gonna be pleased with me. He's really gonna be happy. No, but the Bible says, no, it's based upon what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Now, in saying that, there was a little important note there in talking about covenants. While a covenant can be unconditional, the blessing and the enjoyment of that covenant was always based upon obedience. For example, God gave a land covenant to Israel. The land is always Israel's land. It's unconditional. God made that in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. But the enjoyment of that land was always conditioned on obedience. God said, your land's always yours. But if you're going to stay in this land and be blessed, well, then you need to obey me. In the same way for you and I, yes, we have an unconditional promise through the cross of Jesus Christ. But the Bible is very clear, especially as we're studying in the book of James, if you're going to walk in blessing and joy and peace, well, then we need to be walking in obedience to Jesus Christ. God's not going to send you to hell, but you're not going to enjoy and get all the blessings that God has for you. You're going to miss out. It's important for us to obey Now we see there's better promises in this covenant. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, obviously, in reading this covenant here, it's clear that these are literal future promises made to the nation of Israel. God said, I make it with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah after those days. And so this is a future promise that will finally be fulfilled when Israel turns to God at the end of the tribulation. Jesus comes back as their king, establishes the thousand-year literal kingdom on this earth, Revelation 20 says, And then all Israel at that time will be saved and they'll experience these blessings. And so if you read it, you know, literally, because he says here that no one will need to teach you about the Lord. All will know the Lord. Well, I was talking about what Isaiah said when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And we know with our world today, our whole world isn't filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Only when Jesus comes back can that be possible. So let's talk about these blessings here that will come to Israel in that day. God promises those Jews in Jeremiah's day internal righteousness, which we know can only come by being born again by the Spirit. God promises Israel in Jeremiah's day, which was surrounded by wickedness. Coming judgment was going to come on Israel by the Babylonian Empire. Yet he promised that one day there will be universal righteousness and the knowledge of Christ as he rules and reigns on the earth. God promises Israel a continual forgiveness of sins. In contrast to the law and the sacrificial system that they were under, They had a continual reminder day after day of the fact that they were a sinner. But God said, when I establish this new covenant with you, you will will know that your sins are forgiven, and I will not remember your sins anymore. There will not be a need for a continual sacrifice. But God will not choose to hold their sins against them. Now, while the new covenant will find its future fulfillment in Israel in the kingdom age, believers in Jesus, it's clear are partakers of this spiritual blessings in Christ. We don't, we don't take it over, but we are partakers of it. 
And the way, that we, the way that we become partakers of it is through the blessing of the promise of Abraham. God made a very important covenant with Abraham, and it was an unconditional covenant. And God, under this covenant, promised Abraham three things. A seed, right, a, 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 a promise of the land, and also um, the promise of blessing. Three things, seed, land, and blessing. And those three things would later be uh, continually uh, brought out by God in three, three unconditional covenants. We know that as the seed blessing promise through David that a king would rule forever and ever on the throne of David, unconditional covenant made to David. The land covenant made to Israel in Deuteronomy 30 and 31, we call it the land covenant unconditional to Israel. And then the blessing promise that would come through the new covenant, which is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. All three covenants have to be fulfilled in the kingdom age in order for them to be fully fulfilled. In order for David, Jesus to reign on the throne of David, he has to reign on earth on the throne of David. It can't be in heaven. It has to be on earth to reign forever. Israel has never possessed all of their land, but they will in the kingdom age. They'll possess all of their land. And not all Israel is saved, as the new covenant promises, but that can only happen as Jesus comes back and all Israel will be saved. So that's why we believe that these covenants are still literal in future and that the church has not replaced Israel in that way. But while that was so, Paul wrote a very important note in Galatians, um, in the book of Galatians. He says, but hey guys, Gentiles don't feel excluded because this blessing promise has come to all mankind through Jesus Christ. And by believing in Jesus, you're now partakers of these blessings. We have this indwelling Holy Spirit today. We have this internal righteousness that the Lord gives us through his promise. We have an intimate relationship with the Lord. And also we have a promise that one day Christ will come back for us and we will rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom. Paul says we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. It's not based upon what we do. It's based upon Christ and the work that he's done on the cross. The writer closes this chapter in verse 13 by saying, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So since God has made a new covenant, the first is obsolete. The first will pass away. It will become no longer needed. And since it's no longer needed, it will grow old and will vanish away. What God needs, he preserves. Think about the Bible. I mean, right? The Bible has never perished or vanished away because God needs it. But the law, there is no longer a need for it. It's been rendered null and void, and so um, it, it has vanished away. Now, vanished away, we, we see that process for after Christ died. In 33 AD, the temple, the veil was ripped from top to bottom, right? Showing that access was made in there, so they didn't need the, the veil anymore. And the writer was writing this in 64 AD, and just six years later, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and so was the sacrificial system and all of the priesthood and everything that they did. Showing, hey guys, it's ready to vanish away. And guess what? It did vanish away. And the only thing left is Christ, the high priest, who's ruling and reigning in heaven. It's a clear indicator. Why go back to Judaism? They need to press forward in the spiritual battle. What's hindering us? What's calling us back to the world, back to the old life? Well, it's nothing in comparison to Jesus. Don't let the battle defeat you. Don't let it discourage you. But let's take some time with the Lord tonight get away and have, these sweet, and, and have this sweet reminder of the Lord's eminent ministry 
He's ministering in heaven for us. He's alive. And also he's this meteor, this new covenant that we have grace upon grace. Amen?